Thank you to the musicians. Um, it is a long Sunday morning for them. They are here early practicing and uh, leading us in worship at both the 9 a.m. and uh, the 11 a.m. service. And so I very much appreciate all of them um, and their, their commitment to serve us, and they serve us well week in and week out. Um, so thank you. You can open up to Exodus chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. Exodus 7. We have a number of children's Bibles or kids' Bible books um, around our house. We have some here at the church, and if you have kids or grandkids, you have probably read a uh, children's Bible, um, some, some version of that to your kids over the years. There are certain stories in those children's books that get a lot of attention, certain Bible stories, and there are certain other stories that don't get as much attention. So, when was the last time that you saw a, maybe a coloring page or a, a few pages in a Bible story book that discussed the story in Judges 21, where the leaders of Israel tell the men of the tribe of Benjamin to go out and snatch a wife for themselves from the daughters of Shiloh while they dance in the vineyards at the yearly feast? I mean, that one's not covered all that often in the... Uh, the children's Bibles that I've read. I've actually seen a coloring page on that story one time, and uh, it was a delightful page, actually. Um, <laughs> wonderful. But there are other stories in Scripture that get a ton of attention in those children's books, and the ten plagues in Exodus 7 through 11 are definitely one of those stories that get all the attention. I mean, you have to cover these if you're going to write a book going through the stories of Scripture. And it is kind of amazing that this story gets so much attention. I mean, I know why, but if you think about it, this along with Noah's Ark, there's just a ton of death and destruction in these stories. And these are some of the most prominent children's stories that come in, in children's Bibles. I mean, Noah's Ark in particular, there's eight people that live and everyone else dies, kids, the whole world, you know. So look, let's put animals on the wall. There were only two. All the rest of them died, you know. Kind of a crazy deal to be in a children's book. Nonetheless, this is one of those stories that gets a lot of attention, uh, the 10 plagues in Exodus 7 through 11. And um, the frogs always get probably the most attention. They're on all the coloring pages, and uh, they're, they're in the activity books. They're everywhere. Um, and we'll talk about the frogs in a few minutes. But each of these plagues, is, or these signs are unique, and it's tempting to sort of get into the weeds and to think about the details of these signs and what happened and what it, it would have been like, and, and we'll do some of that, but I want to zoom out before we get into the specifics, and I want to remind you of why these are here and how they fit into the book of Exodus and then ultimately into the whole flow of Scripture from Genesis into Exodus. Yahweh God, the creator God, is going to be faithful to his covenant with Abraham. And he's going to rescue Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, the nation of Israel, and he's going to make them his special chosen people. And he's doing this so that they can bless the world. And that's what God promised to Abraham. And so this book shows the redemption of the people of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh and service to Pharaoh 
into service to Yahweh God. It's a movement from one master to another master. And in the middle of that movement is this redemption story that the, 12, or the, the ten signs or plagues bring about. And as all of this is happening, and as God moves his people and redeems his people, it's going to put God's character on display. And God's going to show both the nation of Israel and the Egyptians, and Pharaoh in particular, who he is. I mean, God makes the purpose of the plagues or the signs these miracles quite clear as he's doing them in Exodus chapter 9. You can listen to this as I read it, but Exodus 9, 14 through 16, listen to what God says. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you. He's speaking to Pharaoh here. On you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I mean, we know God could have just snapped his fingers and brought about one incident, one sign, one plague, one miracle, and obliterated Egypt, destroyed Pharaoh, and freed the nation of Israel from slavery. But he doesn't do that. Instead, we get a series of unfolding plagues or signs that come about. And I think there are 11 of these signs. I know we're used to saying 10, and I've even said 10 this morning, but I'll show you why I think there are actually 11 of these, and that's important. But these 11 signs lead us to Israel's redemption and put God's character on display. And these 11 signs are going to answer the question that Pharaoh posed himself in Exodus 5-2. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. And that question is a heading over all of these signs. They're going to answer that question. And so what do they, how do they answer it? What do these signs tell us about God? Well, you can see in the title of today's sermon, the answer to that question. And this is part one. And we're going to spend a couple of more weeks in this as we study these 10 or 11 plagues or signs. But you can see there, the title is their signs of sovereignty and superiority. And so these signs, these plagues, these miracles are going to show us two main things about God. First of all, they're going to show us his sovereignty, his absolute authority and control over creation, over nature. And then secondly, these signs are going to demonstrate that he alone is God and he is superior to any other rival. No one, none of the gods of Egypt, not Pharaoh himself, can match Yahweh God. He is superior. Now, those two things that this is going to teach us, sovereignty and superiority, those go together. They match and they go hand in hand. And here's how and why they go hand in hand in these, in these signs. Pharaoh was, as we've talked about before, was considered a son of a god. He was considered divine. And his main responsibility, 
as the divine son of one of the Egyptian gods, his main responsibility for the people of Egypt was to maintain the natural order. He was supposed to keep the cosmic order, the elements of nature, the rivers, the fields, producing food for Egypt. He was supposed to maintain the order so that the people could live flourishing lives as they raised their children, as they raised their cattle, as they harvested their crops. Rain was supposed to come. The river was supposed to provide for their needs. And so that was his mission. That was his role in life. And then you've got these signs, these plagues coming in, and these undo the stability of the natural order. I mean, the the entire nation of Egypt just descends into absolute and total chaos. Nothing is working as it should. They can't get water. Their livestock die. Their crops are eaten by locusts. Nothing is going properly. And so the object of scorn when the natural order comes undone is Pharaoh. I mean, he's humiliated by this because it's his responsibility. He's the one that's supposed to maintain control. And so Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt are humiliated by these these signs. You can see this quite clearly in the very last sign that is given, the death of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 12. God actually says the culmination sign, this one, lead all the others have led to this, this These signs have targeted the gods of Egypt. I mean, they're in the the bullseye of why God is doing these things. Exodus 12, 12 says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." And so all the signs have led to this one, and all of them together, including this final sign, will demonstrate that Yahweh God is master and authority over any other supposed gods that Egypt worships. And so if you you put these two together, sovereignty and superiority, displayed in these plagues and signs, here's how I would summarize all of these chapters, all right? So chapter 7, verse 8, all the way through chapter 11 and verse 10, here's a sentence to sort of put these together. Now you don't even have to read them. This is it. No, I'm just kidding. God's sovereignty over nature displayed in these signs shows his superiority over any other gods. They go together. His sovereignty displayed in these signs shows and demonstrates his superiority over any other gods gods. Now this is a a summary statement that I want you to keep in mind and we'll go back to this in the coming weeks as as we look at these passages, at these signs. But with that overall message in mind, I want to tell you how we're going to approach this whole portion of scripture here, 7, 8, all the way through 11, 10. I typically, when I teach and preach, give you a, a, I what I hope is a clear outline, a structured outline that you can follow along. And I'll, you know, three ways that this demonstrates um, something about God's character or, you know, four ideas or whatever it may be. And I'm not going to do that with these signs. This whole section comes to us as one story. There, there's all these different pieces and parts to it, but the whole thing is meant to be read together and is meant to flow together. And we just don't have time to do the whole thing in one pop this morning because 
we would still be here when the next steps class starts tonight at five if we tried to do that. And so the way I want to approach this over the next few weeks that we study this is I want you to keep sovereignty and superiority in mind and then I'm going to just going to walk us through this story, read through it, comment on it, tell you what's happening, because I want you to feel the flow of the story and get into the story as it unfolds. These signs build in intensity. It's beautifully written, and there are different themes that sort of pop out throughout the story that I want to draw your attention to. And so I'm not going to break it down into subpoints each week. We're just going to sort of jump in and go along with Moses as he's unfolding for us what God is doing. Now, I mentioned to you as we get going into this, I mentioned to you just a few moments ago that there are actually 11 signs or miracles here. And I'm saying that because I know we typically say 10, but the, the, the sign of Moses' staff turning into a serpent in the presence of Pharaoh, I'm counting that as the first sign. And so what you've got in this whole section is you've got a structure that goes that sign, number one, and then you've got nine in the middle that form the heart of this, and then you've got one at the end, the death of the firstborn, the Passover night, that is given an extended explanation, and everything sort of builds up to that. So one, nine, and one is how this is structured. Now, the middle, nine, the guts of this whole thing, these nine plagues in the middle, you may not have noticed this before, but these actually come to us in three cycles or three waves. Sometimes it's easy to read through this and just, just sort of, oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. There's so many different things happening, but it's pretty well structured. And Moses wants us to see how these plagues come in three different waves. And I want to show you this in the text. The, there's increasing destruction and increasing intensity in these waves. And then even within the waves, the reaction of Pharaoh changes and the reactions of the people change throughout the waves. And so early on, you have the magicians trying to imitate these signs and then they actually get the boils themselves and they can't stand before Moses. And then by the end of the story, you've got Pharaoh's closest advisors, including these magicians, begging him to just let these people go. Get them out of here. We're going to be ruined completely if you don't. And so there's a progression and intensity in the waves of plagues that come upon Egypt. But I want to show you why I think they come in three waves. So look at seven, chapter 7. In verse 15, I want to show you how each of these three waves of plagues begins. The first one, what we typically think of the first one, where the Nile River turns to blood, begins in verse 14. But in verse 15, notice what God tells Moses to do. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So go out in the morning to Pharaoh as he is wading into the Nile River. All right, fourth plague. This begins the second wave. Look at chapter 8 and verse 20. The flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Once again, the second wave of plagues begins with 
Moses going out to Pharaoh to meet him as he goes to bathe in the Nile River. Third cycle of plagues, the seventh one. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven, eight, nine. Those are the three cycles. The seventh one, verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. And based on the previous two, we assume since Pharaoh would have been going down to the, the water, that he meets him there again by the water and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now, none of the other signs or plagues have Moses meeting Pharaoh in or by the Nile River early in the morning. Why these three and why the emphasis on him doing this? Well, we've already seen, if you're thinking about the whole book of Exodus, that the people of Israel are serving Pharaoh. He is their master. They are under his lordship in many ways and in slavery to him. And God's plan is to rescue them out of slavery and bring them to freedom, but freedom to then serve and worship him. That's the movement of the book. And so the whole book is setting up Pharaoh as this rival deity, supposed deity, to Yahweh God. He is the representative of the gods of Egypt, considers himself divine, and he is opposed to God. And so it's not accidental that every morning Pharaoh begins his day by going down to the Nile River, which we've already talked about would have been considered divine, and he takes a bath in the Nile River. This is not just to cleanse himself off like you would take a shower in the morning. Most likely this is a ritual religious bath where he goes down into the Nile River and connects with the gods and tries to appease them so that he can maintain cosmic order for his people. There are multiple passages of Scripture that speak about Pharaoh and the Nile River and draw this connection to him being a representative of the gods and ultimately representing Satan as opposed to Yahweh God. We've looked at one of these a few weeks ago, but I'm going to show you again Ezekiel 29. Speak and thus and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon or serpent that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. So his interaction with the Nile indicates that he considers himself the master over the Nile River and divine and a representative of the gods. Another one, and you're probably familiar with this passage more than the Ezekiel one, no doubt you've read this before, but maybe never made the connection to the Exodus and to Pharaoh being the dragon in here. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old. So Isaiah is writing at a future time from Exodus, and he's looking back to the Exodus, the generations of long ago. Was it not you, Yahweh God, who cut Rahab in pieces, talking about Pharaoh and Egypt there, who pierced the dragon... And we know this is the Exodus and this dragon and Rahab are Pharaoh because of what he says next. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? I mean, that's the Red Sea. God dries up the water so that Israel can go through. Who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. And so the Exodus 
passing through the sea connects back to God's destruction of Pharaoh as the representative of the gods and God's opposition to him specifically as the dragon, as the representative of Satan. And so God tells Moses to go out to the Nile River and meet Pharaoh as he's performing his religious ritual every morning. And this is meant to convey to Pharaoh that he, even though he considers himself divine and the representative of the gods, that God is going to demonstrate his power and authority over him in the long run. And this power and authority, I think you can see right off the bat in the introduction to all of these signs in chapter 7. So let's finally get into the first one of these signs here in chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. In this short little incident here in front of Pharaoh, you can very much see God's sovereignty over nature and through his sovereignty over nature, you can see his superiority to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian gods. I mean, you can see his sovereignty and his superiority even in the fact that God predicts that Pharaoh will ask them for a sign. Look at verses eight and nine. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Now, think about this in the flow of the book. In chapter 5, Pharaoh has already been confronted by Moses and Aaron, and they demanded that he release the Israelites. And so Pharaoh responds to that by increasing the workload on Israel and making things more difficult for them. And by saying, who's the Lord that I should obey him? Setting himself up as a rival to God and claiming authority over the people of Israel. And so when they come, when Moses and Aaron come back to him, now he's essentially saying, okay, you guys say you work for this powerful God, prove it. Prove who you work for by doing something miraculous. And so they do. Look at verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And so they provide proof that they work for a a powerful deity, a powerful God. And Pharaoh responds to that by saying, well, that's fine, but I work for powerful gods and I am one too. And so he commands his magicians to do the same thing. Look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Now what's happening here? There are a couple of options as to what could be going on here. One is they really could have some sort of demonic connection to the powers of darkness. That could be what's happening here. The other option that maybe is a little bit more likely is, have you ever seen a magician pull a rabbit out of a hat? Where did the rabbit come from? Sleight of hand, the rabbit shows up, you didn't even know it was there. That could be what these guys are doing here. They may not actually have any connection to supernatural power. They may just be doing sleight of hand tricks where they make it look like their staff turns into a serpent. And there's some indication of this because by the time you get to the third plague, they actually can't do anything. (laughs) They can't imitate this trick 
or they can't imitate the, the miracle of what Moses and Aaron are doing. Either way, I don't know which one actually takes place here and what they're doing, but either way, they have some limited capacity to convince Pharaoh that they have the same power as Moses and Aaron. But ultimately, this scene should have been a warning to Pharaoh because of what happens next. Look at verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I want you to make note of that word, swallowed there. That word is only used one other time in the book of Exodus. And you can probably guess where it is. If you go to chapter 15, this is the song of Moses and the song of the people of Israel after Pharaoh and his armies have been defeated in the Red Sea. And look what they say to God in verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And so the plagues, the signs are bookended here by a swallowing of the staffs and the serpents of the magicians, and then they are bookended on the other side by a swallowing from God of the earth of Pharaoh and his armies. Both of those indicate the ultimate defeat of Pharaoh. And so watching this happen here, Pharaoh probably should have taken note of this and thought, hmm, that's not good. But of course he doesn't, right? We know how the story goes. Look at verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now we've already learned about this hardness of heart that will come from Pharaoh, and so we expect it, and Moses should have as well. God will harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh will harden his own heart, and this will play a significant role in this story. Now, let me just make sure that we understand exactly what's happening here. It's through this hardening of Pharaoh's heart that we get to the point where God can perform all of these signs. And it's through this that God ends up getting the glory over Pharaoh. But when this happens, God is not just snapping his fingers and making Pharaoh do something he doesn't want to do. I mean, he's not manipulating his heart and changing him from really wanting to let the Israelites go to, nope, you're not going to do it. I'm going to force you not to do this. I mean, God certainly has the authority and the sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart, to work in his heart in particular ways. But think of this hardening as Pharaoh already wants to keep the Israelites in slavery to him. He's made that abundantly clear. He doesn't want to let them go. And now as these signs start to unfold and it becomes clear that there is a divine power at work that he cannot match, it would make sense for him to go, okay, fine. I'm out of my league, they can go. But God strengthens his resolve and continues to harden and work in his heart so that despite the evidence to the contrary, he does what he already wants to do. He's already a wicked, sinful man. He's already bent in this direction. He's already rejected God's authority and God's commands to him. And so God continues to strengthen his heart in opposition to him. 
so that God can show his superiority over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt by freeing his people and by having all of these signs continue to unfold. And this is why each of these signs, the episodes, begin with God's words at the beginning and Pharaoh's heart being hardened at the end. Every single one is bookended that way. God's words, Pharaoh's hard heart. Because this is a battle between the gods of Egypt and between God, Yahweh God's word, and who will win out. And God begins this after this initial shot across the bow with the serpent in Pharaoh's throne room. He begins this by going after the very heart of the nation of Egypt, the Nile River. Look at verses 14 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, God makes it quite clear to Pharaoh who he is dealing with here. He says in verse 16, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. He says in verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh has questioned who God is, and he's making it clear, I, I, this is who I am. I'm going to continue to show you who I am. And they're going to know that this is the Lord because, again, the Nile River was was sacred to the Egyptians. It provided life to all of Egypt. The vast majority of people lived within walking distance of the Nile River or even just a few miles away. And God tells Pharaoh who he is, and then he spells out in great detail what he's going to do. Pharaoh should not be able to blame this on any naturally occurring phenomenon. So many people have tried to do that over the years. Oh, well, this was just a really unique season and there was a whole lot of bacteria that got in the water and that's not what's happening here. And Pharaoh himself would have tried to blame it on that, but that is not what's going on. Clearly, God spells out what will happen and then it happens. Verses 19 through 21, look there. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, right? They see it happen. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. It should have been clear at this point what was going on, but Pharaoh's magicians give him an excuse. 
He's trying to grasp onto anything he can to not recognize God's authority, and they give him an excuse. Look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So whatever's happening here, whether this is sleight of hand or actual supernatural power, they, to some extent, are able to make it appear like they can duplicate this. Now, obviously, they can't reverse it, which is indication enough that they don't have any real power or real authority. It's not like they can make the, the red water, the blood, turn back into clear, drinkable water. They can only take some pot of water that they have and make it look red or turn into blood or whatever it is that they're doing here. They have limited power, limited authority, but Pharaoh doesn't need much to go on. He's grasping for anything he can. Look at verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Now, this is the first plague here that happens, the first sign, the first major one that happens to the Egyptians. And I told you they come in cycles. The first three of these are difficult for the people to handle, but they're not overly destructive compared to the rest of them. Nobody dies from this. Um, nobody goes without water. Look at verse 24. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. I mean, they're able to get drinkable water. It's a lot of work. It's annoying when you're used to just going down to the river, but they're able to make it. It's a disruption to life for a short time. And the next two will be as well. But ultimately, this is not going to destroy the people or destroy their way of life. It is, that, it is an annoyance for a short time. Look at verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, I think this is giving us a time frame for the rest of these plagues or signs. So I think Moses writes this here and then doesn't repeat it after every sign because that would get a little monotonous to read. But I think this tells us this is about the length of time in between each of these plagues. So total, you're looking at about two and a half months of signs or of plagues from, from start to finish here. It's reasonable to assume that this is the time frame here. And so after a week of this happening, Moses hears from the Lord again. And this time, with the second one of these, God threatens Pharaoh and gives him a condition to abide by. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, you can see that if, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. It's hard to read this without giggling, I think. It's very funny in a lot of ways. <laughs> the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. You can see in verse 1 back here, he says, let my people go that they may serve me. He's making the distinction clear. I don't want them serving you anymore. I'm going to rescue them in order that they may serve me. This highlights that movement that we've been talking about from service to Pharaoh to service to God. And so there's 
They present this and, and, and threaten Pharaoh with these frogs. And I'm sure that Moses just didn't record the discussion, but there was probably some discussion. And the, the verdict is that Pharaoh is not going to relent. And then look at verses five and six. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, I'm kind of ambivalent toward frogs in general. I, they're not super gross to me. I don't love them. One of my children would pick a frog up any time that we see one. The others would prefer not to. Well, probably most of you are somewhere along that spectrum, right? Eh, they're all right. Not too bad. I don't, not a huge fan. Not completely grossed out by them. But these frogs are literally everywhere. I mean, there's a reason this is like the, the premier coloring page of, of the children's books, right? Of the children's curriculum. Because just imagining this taking place is humorous. And, and awful. If you're an Egyptian, you're not sleeping on a, a platform bed. You're most likely sleeping on some sort of a cot that is right on the ground. And so you're rolling over in bed and there are frogs all up in your covers and you're everywhere. You're squishing them. They are in your oven when you're trying to bake things. They, you're trying to create flour and they are there and you're smashing them and their guts are everywhere. And I'm not around frogs a lot, but frogs, they make noise, right? They're, they constantly make noise. And if you're ever out at a creek at night and you hear a frog, they're loud and you can never figure out where it's coming from. You can never find the frog to make it stop. Well, there were thousands of frogs all over the place, everywhere. For these people, they're noisy at night and they poop everywhere too. It is a mess for the Egyptians. And it says here that they covered the land, right? I mean, they are all over the place. Now, once again, Pharaoh's magicians attempt to mimic this. But notice once again that they cannot do anything about the frogs that are already there. They can't get rid of them. They can only add more to the mess or make it appear like there are more in the thick of things. Look at verse 8 of chapter 8. Then Pharaoh, or sorry, verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. They can't do anything about the ones that are already there. And so... Amazingly enough, ironically enough, Pharaoh has to turn to Moses and ask him to get rid of the frogs. This is delightful. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And then interestingly enough, Moses agrees with that, and then asks Pharaoh to give him a time frame for this. Look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Now, I've always wondered, okay, so why didn't Pharaoh say now? Like five minutes ago, get rid of these things. Why does he say tomorrow? 
Because in Pharaoh's world, you had to approach a god by doing some religious ritual, and it probably took some time to convince this deity to act on your behalf. So he's probably assuming that Moses has to do the same sort of thing here. And so he sets the time frame as tomorrow, which ends up proving to Pharaoh that Yahweh God is actually real and has authority because God does exactly what Moses asks him to do. Moses says in verse 11, the frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. Verse 12, so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. Verse 13, and the Lord did according to the words of, word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. Awful. And yet, once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now we get to the third sign or plague in this first cycle. And interestingly, all of the the initial plagues, the first ones, first, fourth, and seventh, begin in the morning with Moses meeting Pharaoh by the Nile demanding that he release God's people. The third one in each cycle doesn't record Moses going to Pharaoh. It just records Moses hearing from the Lord what to do and doing it. And that's what we find here. This sort of ends each of these cycles of plagues. God just tells them to act. Look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats. And we'll talk about that in just a second. In all the land of Egypt. Now, mine obviously says, the ESV says gnats. If you have a King James Bible or a New King James, it uses the word lice here, which is a very different creature than a gnat. This word is kind of ambiguous, so there are several options here. In Virginia, where I grew up, we had gnats, which are these tiny little black bugs that don't really bite you, but they're suicide bombers that circle your head and at the right moment seem to find a way to fly into your eye and get stuck under your eyelid, and it's awful. And so when you're out playing soccer in the fall, there are gnats buzzing around your head and they end up in your eye, and it's super annoying. That could be what this is. The other option is lice, which if you've ever had a child at school, there is a lice outbreak nearly every year, and all the parents are horrified about what is happening, that there is a lice outbreak. Lice are very different. They don't fly. They move from person to person, and they itch, and they're almost impossible to get rid of. So this word here, gnat, could mean either of those. It could also mean mosquito. There are a number of options. But you can imagine if the dust of the land turns to whatever bug this is and they fill the land and are on every person and every animal, this is awful. This is an annoyance, a nasty annoyance. Verse 17. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were 
gnats or lice on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt, everywhere. Now, once again, the Egyptian magicians are brought in. This time, things go very differently for them. Verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats or lice, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. This sort of makes me think that they were just um, sleight of hand artists because it would be very difficult to sort of corral lice or gnats to perform your magic trick with them. And they can't do it. Whatever they were doing before, whether they had a connection to some dark power or not, they could not do it here. And notice their reaction to the fact that they cannot imitate this in verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're not acknowledging God's authority. They're not acknowledging that they're now going to become worshipers of Yahweh and they're going to head out with Israel out of the land of Egypt. But they do recognize there is something beyond us that is at work here. Something beyond their skill and not of human origin is happening in this plague. Pharaoh now can no longer convince himself that Moses and Aaron are just like his magicians. They're not the same. Pharaoh now should understand at the end of this first cycle that he has something much bigger on his hands than sleight of hand or simple tricks. But I want you to notice in verse 19 what these magicians call this. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And then you can see at the end, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. But they say this is the finger of God. They are recognizing God's power over nature, his sovereignty. They are seeing this very clearly here. He is in control and this shows that he is superior over the gods of Egypt. They can't do anything about this. Their gods are of no help in this moment. Now, what's amazing about this is that did you know that Jesus uses this very phrase in the New Testament, the finger of God? And he uses it in a place where I am confident he is alluding back to this passage. And I want to show you that. It's in Luke chapter 11, and I'll put it on the screen. You can turn there if you want. But I want to show you, in this passage, Jesus is casting out demons. And he's asked for a sign to prove that he's divine. And so we've got the same sort of circumstances where you've got signs being performed, and then you've got Jesus doing a sign as well, and he's asked to do further signs. Luke 11, 14 through 16. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. You can't argue with that, and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Listen to how Jesus responds to this. He's being accused of having dark power here that gives him authority over demons. 
And so they want to keep seeing signs from him. Listen to how he responds, verses 17 through 19. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, obviously, Jesus is saying, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. It doesn't make any sense here. And if that's not what I'm doing, then there's only one other option that you've got. Where is his power and authority coming from? Look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I think what's happening here is Jesus is picking up the language of Exodus 8. And he's intentionally using this phrase And the language in Exodus 8 was in the context of signs being done to prove the power of God over the powers of darkness, over Satan. And Jesus picks up this language and uses it here to say, I am using, I have the power of God in casting out demons over the powers of darkness and over Satan. Now, I don't know if this illusion was picked up here by the the Jews, the religious leaders that should have known the Old Testament scriptures and been able to understand what Jesus was saying here, but we can certainly pick this up. And we can understand why he's making this connection and this illusion, and he's doing this to make a point here about his own ministry. And here's what he's saying. The same finger of God that was at work in Exodus that you guys, these Jewish people who are questioning him, you know this story. You believe this story. You celebrate Passover as the culmination of this every year. The same finger of God that was at work there is at work in my ministry right now. And it's through this finger of God and this power over nature and over any other God, any rival deity, over Satan himself, it's this power that is being demonstrated and that, as he says, brings about the kingdom of God. It indicates to them, or should have indicated, that the power of God and the kingdom of God was upon them. Now, in Exodus, the kingdom of Pharaoh was overcome by God's power, and his people, God's people, were delivered from slavery to Pharaoh. In the ministry of Jesus, the power of Satan is overcome, as he demonstrates here, by casting these demons out, and God's people are delivered from slavery to Satan and brought to the kingdom of God. They are redeemed delivered from the authority of sin and Satan by an overwhelming power. And here's the thing. This is the same power that is still at work. Colossians 1. This is the power that took place in your life if you're a follower of Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
by his power and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so to read about the finger of God in Exodus, the finger of God accomplishing these works and these signs with this power, this is not to just read about ancient history, about a children's story that is neat to talk about with our kids and imagine what it would have been like to have frogs come up out of the Nile River. This is not just to read about some ancient power that has no bearing on our lives today. Because Jesus makes it absolutely clear that the the finger of God that accomplished the first exodus is the same finger of God that is at work in the second exodus through him. And it's the finger of God and the power of God that brings about the resurrection and that forgives our sins and gives us new life today. That's the power that's at work and still at work. That's the power, if you are the child of God this morning, that is at work in you right now by the Holy Spirit. It's not just ancient history. He's working in you to sanctify you, to make you holy, to grow you in the faith, to cause you to endure, to keep at it, to make it to the end, to sustain you, to provide joy in the midst of darkness. That's the power that is at work in you. That's the power that has brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the power that's at work in you right now, this week, this year. And so remember that as you go into your week this week. It's not ancient history. The same God is at work in us to do amazing things that demonstrate his sovereignty and his superiority. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are powerful when we are powerless, that you are sovereign when we are weak. You are superior to any rival, God, And I pray that you would encourage us with this this morning. Build us up in the faith. Help us to trust you more as a result of hearing about your authority and your power, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Help us to find our identity in this passage in Colossians that we have been transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Help us to see the finger, your finger at work in our lives in small and big ways, Lord. We thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.